Welcome to Dental Bites. I'm Natasha Gillis, your smiling lawyer, and I am Malika Azergun, your dental zero. We are so pleased to introduce our sixth podcast as we talk today a little bit to both our existing practice owners and some of our new graduates, new associates who are looking for a position with um, a dental practice. So the purpose in today's discussion is really Malika is going to focus on our employers and giving them some thoughts based on her experience on how to position their practices to bring on top talent. And I'm going to focus a little bit heavily on the employee side and talk to our newly minted dentists about what to expect when you see employment agreements and basic quick tips that they can do at home before involving an attorney to help them navigate the process. So first of all, congrats to all of our graduates. We are so excited that you're embarking on your new careers. Um, A lot of the phone calls that I get at this time of year specifically from a lot of the graduates highlight these four questions. The first question is, is this position the right fit for me? The second question that we often hear in the conversation is, will my employer be the right fit for me? And will I be able to grow or will this position hinder me from growth? And then finally, is this where I want to be associated with? Is this where I want to be branded with? So Malika, with these questions in mind, what are your recommendations based on what you've seen and how you've guided your practice owners on what they need to consider before they even embark on this path of hiring a new associate? Um, Great question. Uh, Obviously, this is a a very hot topic, and I get this all the time from both ends. And from the client end, the dentist that's, you know, trying to bring an associate on board, it's so important for them to have a plan in place and know what they're, you know, what do they want out of that associate? Is this going to be a future um, partnership? Is this someone to just give them a breather so that they can spend some time at home? Or let's say if you have a, you know, a satellite practice and they're trying to grow their satellite practice so they want to be spending more time there and then the associate is going to kind of help with the existing practice that they have, um, you know, what is the long-term plans for this associate so that when they're starting to, to look and speak to these candidates and interview them, they're not, you know, spending time or I should say wasting time interviewing candidates and they turn around at the end and they're like, well, I'm not even really sure which one would be a good fit for me. So that they're asking the right questions from this potential candidate and they know that what their game plan is. And also really discussing this with their team because their team is one that is going to have to be involved in this whole process because it's so important for them to know um, or really how they're going to be communicating with that individual. So knowing that, okay, do I have enough production, enough, you know, patient flow to bring this associate on board, or is this just a short, and I have, you know, processes where this is short term, I just need it once a week. Um, then, you know, you can bring really anybody to help you at that point. But if it's something that's long-term and you're looking into a partnership, then you would really want to make sure that you have the right fit and, it, you know, your personalities fit well together. Um, one of the things that I always, you know, tell my clients when they're looking is that um, making sure that the individual you're bringing on board, if it's something that you, someone that you want to keep long term, what is their that associate's long term plans? Because if they're looking to just stay on board before they move to a, their home state or they're moving because they're of spouse's work, 
it's going to be a hard transition. So you want to make sure that you get the right person that fits your practice. Mm-hmm. That's a good, good um, feedback. And you mentioned too about partnership and I'll chime in on that. So kind of shifting gears away from the employees for a moment, because that's the topic I was going to take on back to the employer side where Malika's talking about um, when you are considering drafting your employment agreements, I have had a lot of my practices, employers ask me, hey, should I include language about a potential buy-in into the business? And just like Malika said, it's really important as an employer, highlight your goals and figure out, are you thinking about retiring? Are you thinking about selling the practice? What's your, let's say, five-year plan? And if in your five-year plan, the goal is to kind of disengage a little bit more, spend more time with family or whatever personal reasons that you might have to offset some of the the time that you have at the office, it might not be a bad idea. But if we're talking about including this sort of language for new graduates, I would say hold off for the first year. Make sure, like Malika said, they're a right fit before you say, well, we're going to put in a writing, written contract in writing that this position can bloom into a partnership. So like Malika said, definitely think about what is your goal, but in terms of the writing, be very careful before you put that sort of language in writing, unless that is in fact your plan and you hit it off really well with that associate. Um, Absolutely. Because that's, I think I was joking to tell clients, I said, you know, first date before you try to get engaged and get married. Cause I know that some, you know, my clients get super excited and they're like, okay, I think she's it. We're going to do the contract in a, in a way where there's going to be partnership. I'm like, what if in three months you guys just don't see eye to eye? Right. You know, that's messy. Um, so Malika talk to me a little bit about, uh, enticing top talent. What are your thoughts? What can a practice owner do to really bring in the cream of the crop? I think really spending time with that. I mean, right now, especially there's a lot of potential candidates out there and some really great ones. And I think the number one thing to look at is one is as much as I, people say, you know, clinically they have to be good, which is no, there's no question about that. Mm-hmm. But I also think that personality is important because that individual has to not only get along with you, they have to fit the dynamic and the culture of your practice and get along with your team, your hygienist and your patients. And if you bring someone on board that just does not see eye to eye with you or doesn't have the bubbly personality you have or vice versa, you guys are probably not going to mesh well together and your staff won't either. So making sure that you take your time, you know, I always, you know, advise my clients to be able to bring them in, show them a couple sample treatment plans or x-rays and say, how would you treatment plan this patient to make sure that you guys probably in most of cases, treatment plan the same way so that there's no any over-treatment planning or under-treatment planning. So then let's say a patient that you've seen for six years that ends up in the chair with your associate, the treatment plan's completely different than that patient's going to question your practice. Ah, so make your philosophy, make sure your philosophies are similar. Absolutely. Because you know, that's really important for, you know, I've had so many situations where, you know, associateship has not worked out. And when I ask for the reasoning behind it, the owner's like, you know, he or she was over treatment planning and my patients just couldn't take it anymore. I was losing patients. The back door was open and my patients would see this individual and had a great first appointment. But the minute the treatment plan was proposed, they didn't want to stay in my practice anymore. Mm-hmm. So that is so important to make sure that, you know, you guys have the same, the philosophy is there. Treatment planning wise, you guys see eye to eye. Another thing is that 
you might be a dentist that does not like to do root canals, does not like to do sleep apnea appliances, but this individual that you're interviewing, a potential candidate, really is great at RCTs, root canals, great at doing um, you know, sleep, sleep apnea appliances. So instead of you referring that out, they can bring that money and revenue into your practice and keep it there. That's a win. Mm. That's a good thought too. Interesting. So let me tease your brain a little bit, put you on the other side of the table. Okay. Um, what are some things a newly graduated dentist should consider when pinpointing where they want to look at working at? What are your thoughts if you're on the other side of the table? Good question. So um, there's really a lot of angles. If you are looking for a practice where you just, you have all your, you know, you have obviously most of you, these new graduates are coming out with a lot of hefty loans. So you're coming out and you want a practice where, you know, they pay, you need the benefits that are giving you health insurance, they're paying for your malpractice, they're paying for CE credits, they're, you know, taking care of your 401k, there's so much potential there. You might want to look at a bigger you know, family practice where they have multiple locations, possibly even a DSO, um, because that's where you're going to probably get all those benefits there. Now, the catch, you know, there's there's goods and bads with that. The good with that is obviously these benefits that you get. The, the negative could possibly be the contracts, because if they have multiple locations, when you sign that contract, you might get pinned in that sense that you might not be able to open a practice three, five years, whatever, you know, restriction you sign within that area. And if you're looking to, let's say, open a practice in D.C. and you sign that contract, you might not be able to open anywhere in D.C. anymore. Right. So, and I have, have you know, new graduates that have said, you know, I'm going to work in D.C., for example, because I'm planning to open a practice eventually in Virginia. Right. So you want to be really careful with that. And also when you open up a big practice that has multiple locations, and if they're asking you that you're going to run one of their locations, you want to make sure that you have the personality to handle that because they will, they will probably expect you just literally to be it in that practice. And, and I have gotten feedbacks from graduates that said, I feel like they threw me at the wolves. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't know the patients. Patients were asking me, who am I? So making sure that you ask the right questions about their foundation. Maybe spend some time with their practice manager and hear them out and what, what are they doing to market you? You know, will the doctor, the owner be there to mentor you for the first 90 days? Those are the things you want to make sure that you guys understand and see eye to eye so that you don't, there's no surprises when you sign that contract and start your your you know, position at the practice. That is so critical, Malika. So just having that conversation, doing your due diligence, and just before you even look at the contracts, making sure this seems and feels at least to be the right fit, and then digging in further. That's a great, great yes. uh, opportunity. Yeah. And then um, you might want ahead. something small and you might say, you know, you might get an older gentleman that's looking to retire in two to three years and have a super cute, um, boutique practice, four chairs, and he or she wants to, you know, slowly step down. And you have that business dr drive and you you know that you want to be a business owner. That one might be a challenge you want to take on, mm -hmm. you know? And I always say this because I've seen it too many times. Be patient because some of these older gentlemen that want to, or, you know, women that want to retire might not retire in the two, three years, they said. It might last five years because right. they just can't let go. That's their baby. They've been practicing for 35, 40 years. Right. But knowing that the potential there is there for you, that might be, you know, a challenge you want to take on. 
Absolutely. That's really great advice. So let me shift our conversation a little bit since we touched a little bit on the non-compete side. Whenever dental grads come to me with these contracts, um, I generally spend some time to talk with them about the skeleton and try to break down the contract for them. So without overburdening a lot of our listeners before they fall asleep, um, these contracts generally, you can divide them into four or five subparts. So generally, you have the economic side. What's the position? What's the compensation? Are they offering benefits? And just to kind of put a bookmark and pivot back on our discussion, and if you are listening carefully, Malika, you brought up a great point. Um, if you're a dental student, you want to look at the benefits. Hint, hint, if you're an employer looking to recruit top talent, you might want to consider offering benefits. Correct. Yeah. So let's shift back to our employee side again. Um, <laughs> I know I love this game. It's, it's devil's advocate all day. But, um, you know, it's very important if you are a dental student. So going back to the negotiation aspect, talk to your potential employer about the economics. And that's something that should be reflected in the contract. There should be no surprises by the time you see the contract. You're also going to see some language about your obligations and restrictions. So make sure first you understand what the job is asking you to do. There are a lot of clauses in these pretty well-written contracts that I've seen um, that will ask you to please make sure you're up to date on your CEs by attending various study clubs and representing the practice and doing some marketing events for them. But make sure you can commit before you kind of gloss over it and think that it's boilerplate language. It's not. Make sure you understand what it means. Now, my favorite part of these contracts that I like to really hone in on is the non-compete and the non-solicitation. So long story short, easy way to kind of grasp the concept, the non-competes in most states have to be reasonably tailored and they must be absolutely necessary to protect the employer's best interests. They cannot be drafted where you have these, oh, within 15 mile radius of every single practice that the practice owner owns. Can't do that. So we really try to hone in on these non-competes with an eye towards fairness and say, okay, is it for every practice that this associate works at? And is 15 miles, for example, too much? And keep this in the back of your mind. If you are looking to apply for a job in a rural area, that 15 miles actually may be appropriate as opposed to somewhere that's in the city where that 15 miles probably would not be. So these are some things to kind of arm yourself with when you're walking into these contracts and understanding what, what am I looking at? And so what I usually do is I'll tell all of my clients which items are deal breakers. So my recommendation to our listeners today who are in this position where they have an employment agreement in front of them is print it out, take a yellow highlighter and highlight everything that is a deal breaker, absolute hard deal breaker. Take a blue highlighter and circle or star the things that you would like changed but are not deal breakers and put that in the back of your mind as topics to discuss. For everything else that you don't understand, take a pencil, put a star or circle it. We're going to come back to that. So what you can do at that point is for the items that are in blue and the items that are in yellow, these are the things that you can kind of carefully do a 
cost-benefit analysis, so to speak, do the scales and decide which of these take precedence over others, which of these things need to be negotiated, which things can you let go of. And whenever you're doing this kind of analysis, always look to the contract term. Is this a one-year term that's an evergreen contract, meaning that it's up for renewal unless either of you terminates, or is this a true term contract where it's a hard stop at a certain period of time? Either way, most of these contracts will have a right to terminate. So if you're careful with your strategy and your planning, any of the items in blue, you can reserve those discussions for your second, third, or fourth year. You don't want to be aggressive with your employer for items that are ideal, but that are nice to have until you get to a position where you can actually say, hey, we've worked together for X, Y, Z amount of years. And I'd really like to see this now. So I think it's really important to know what your list should look like before you come in there and say, I'm going to redline this contract to pieces. What do you think, Malika? Is that a good approach? hundred percent. I think that's the part that usually overwhelms these associates and potential candidates. And it's really just taking it in small bites. And don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, and I think I've seen so many times that it was over something very minor and small, like the, the charge for the lab fees that the doctor was going to charge the associate that, you know, she thought or he, he thought that they couldn't come to an agreement. And when they had the conversation, they were able to, you know, come to a you know happy medium and you know get the, the contract signed by, signed by both ends. Right. The conversation is just as important as the contract review. Yes. And having the right tact. And so oftentimes, for instance, I'll have these these wonderful dental grads who are a little bit timid, rightfully so. I mean, they're they're approaching the process with a very gentle level, but you know, still concerned with their interests. And they say, listen, how do I now? So we've got our list and we've figured out what we need to do. By that point, they've involved me. How do we take this back to the employer? And so we play this sort of again a, a game of devil's advocate to say, well, is your employer comfortable? with me reaching out to their attorney? Have they told you that their attorney is going to handle this? Or is this something that you want to take back to them? So depending on that level of comfort that you've established with your employer, that's also how generally you take these contract red lines back. We can treat it really amicably. It does not have to be a contested or heated environment to make things uncomfortable. Absolutely. So last note that I'd like to make sure our fellow associates are aware of, oftentimes in the event that your employer is not offering insurance, malpractice insurance coverage, and they're asking you to have it, sometimes they do, the small practices will ask that, make sure to keep this in mind. You want to contact your insurance agent, your malpractice carrier, and double check with them the state malpractice limits. So in most of these states, the state legislatures have come out with statutory limits as to how much max malpractice cases can be capped at. Oftentimes in the contracts, I'll see language like you must have insurance at least the amount of 1 million, 3 million. That's not always sufficient. So keep that in the back of your mind. Once you do this kind of mock-up on the contracts and you're really starting to dig into the language, whenever you get to that insurance clause, double check, one, is my employer providing me malpractice insurance or am I required to provide it? If you are required to provide it, pick up the phone, contact your insurance agent, ask them, what is my statutory limit? What do I need to protect myself? Do not skimp on that coverage. It's very important. So Malika, do you have anything else to add before we wrap up with our takeaways? 
I think that's it. And I, I mean, one little thing that I thought about just adding is that make sure you sign a contract. By not signing a contract and not getting a contract, it doesn't mean it's a good deal. That's right. On both ends, because I see this all the time. You know, it's just, you know, not having a contract, I'm sure, Natasha, you can really um, talk about this, but I see it all the time where the dentist wakes up in the morning and says, I don't, I don't want you to work here anymore. Well, and then they're upset. Where's a contract? There's no contract. Mm-hmm. They never had a contract. So I just want to make sure that you definitely, if they're not, if the, um, you know, the dentist, the owner is not offering a contract challenge them. Say, I need a contract. That's right. There has to be a contract. And you bring up a good point. It's not just termination. It's okay. Well, you did shoddy work and you have to leave. Sometimes, even though we don't say it, it's quasi retaliatory. You're leaving. You had shoddy work. I'm upset with you. I'm going to basically recall portions of your collections-based compensation so that it covers this, this rework that I need to do for you on your behalf. And those sort of things can easily escalate into arguments and just a bad taste in your mouth with one another. So to the furthest extent possible, if, if it's not stipulated in the contract, then don't assume that it exists. So make sure you, you definitely, 100%. And sign it. That's what I thought you meant, Malika. Like, actually <laughs> sign it. Yeah, that too. <laughs> that too. <laughs> <laughs> so today's takeaways, Malika, what are your takeaways to our dental offices, our employers? So to dental practices, position yourself to become desirable. Present your practice as if you're marketing for patients. This is very important. Um, added burdens, don't be arrogant. Provide clear leadership. Make sure your practice bones are sound. Wonderful. And my dental bites to our applicants is follow my three-step method. Print out the contract. Take your highlighter, your yellow one, highlight the critical problem areas. Take your blue highlighter, highlight the things that are mm, ideal, that if you could change it, if you can't, we'll table it for another day. Take your pencil, circle the things that you can't understand or if it's unclear. Contact an attorney. I will help you. Any attorney who's competent in these things can help you. Don't go at the process alone. And that's it for today. So wishing all of our new grads much luck, happiness, and success in their new venture. This is Natasha Gillis, your smiling lawyer, and Malika, our dental Zorro, signing off. Have a great day. Bye-bye.